0: Resuming debate? Resuming debate. Resuming debate.
1: My name is Garnet Jenis, husband, father, reader, and blessed with the honour of serving in Canada's National Parliament. I want to thank you for listening. I think one of the biggest problems plaguing our society is that we don't actually debate much anymore. We inhabit our own little silos, Conservatives talking to other Conservatives, Liberals talking to other liberals, oil workers talking to other oil workers, tax lawyers talking to other tax lawyers, you get the idea. People talking to those with whom they already share significant common experience and values. And that means that when we get together across experiential or values divides, we often end up shouting at each other or just talking past each other. So if you're listening to this podcast because you agree with me, that's great. But if you've tuned in, and you come from a different political party, a different intellectual tradition, or a different part of the country, I want you to feel particularly welcome, because this podcast is for you. It's about creating opportunities for good, fruitful conversation and debate among people who don't always agree. In order to do that, we're going to start every show with an interview with a guest, but then conclude with a debate involving one or two other parliamentarians from different parties. We're going to try to get into some really meaty and important topics, and not just about politics. Since the discovery of the unmarked graves of 215 children on the site of a residential school in Kamloops, there has been renewed conversation around these atrocities as well as the steps that need to be taken in terms of apology and reconciliation. Residential schools were a government policy in which various churches and religious entities were contracted to administer parts of the policy. So part of the discussion has been the relationship between the role of government and the roles of churches. And the action that each needs to be taking to move forward. So for today's discussion, all of our guests in both the first and second half are themselves Indigenous. For the first half, we are joined by Graydon, Nicholas, and Maria Lucas. Graydon was the Lieutenant Governor of New Brunswick from 2009 to 2014, the first Indigenous person to hold that role. He has had many prominent roles before and since, including President of the Union of New Brunswick Indians and Chair of the Native Studies Program at St. Thomas University. Graydon is also a practicing Catholic and serves on the board of the Knights of Columbus. Maria Lucas is a co-founder of the Indigenous Catholic Research Fellowship. She is Black and Métis and has completed her law degree with a specialization in Aboriginal law and Indigenous legal traditions in 2019. Uh, You two are the perfect guests to be talking about uh, these topics. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having us.
1: Thank you. So the first place I wanted to start is, is, um, trying to kind of pull apart some of the the lines of responsibility here. There's, there's been a lot of discussion about what the state needs to do uh, and also about what churches and specifically the Catholic church needs to do. Uh, so, so what is your sort of initial reaction in terms of the required state response and then uh, the required church response? Maria, do you want to kick us off?
2: Uh, sure. Um, so I think that uh, this we, we understand that residential schools, the whole system was a church state-run endeavor. It was a partnership between the two. The, the state more or less funded the, the system and in many cases underfunded the system and the uh, church uh, was responsible for implementing it through being the teachers. Um, and at the time we know that education was often run by uh, religious institutions um, and religious orders, so it wasn't uncommon for um, particularly Catholic religious orders uh, to be running educational institutions. Um, however, uh, in this particular in the particular endeavor of residential schools, is the objective for which they existed, right? The government at the time was not secretive about the objective of these schools. It was very clear that the objective was the assimilation of indigenous children. Duncan Campbell Scott was very um, infamously said, kill the Indian and the child, but stay, save the child, right? Um, so this objective, wasn't uh, it wasn't hidden. It was very much out in the open and it was something that the church would have been aware of but yet was still complicit in implementing, right? So because it was a partnership, there's responsibility on both the part of the government and on the part of the church for now having to deal with the the fallout of this um, sorely misguided endeavor.
1: Mm -hmm. Graydon, do you wanna weigh in on on that one as well?
0: Uh, Well, I think that was a great response that she gave. I could just add on a couple more things, number one. I think uh, from the very beginning in the uh, evangelization of indigenous people in this country and throughout the world, the idea was to have them follow the the life of Jesus. I think the early ones mistook what they had to do. And uh, and as a result, the the churches actually lobbied the federal government to enact the law, making it a criminal offense for our people to practice our spiritual ways. Secondly, once they convinced the government to do that, And then secondly, the government uh, uh, said, okay, we're gonna start educating Indian children in the way that Maria has already said. So actually uh, schools were compulsory and removal of the schools from the control of their parents was compulsory as well. It was against, again, it it was against the law if you objected to this. And so as a result, uh, now we have the devastating consequences of what has transpired over 100 years ago of this Ill-conceived uh, idea of, uh, trying to better the life of indigenous people. Mm-hmm. There,
1: there's a certain parallel, uh, maybe in the, in the second edition of this podcast, we talked a little bit about China and I had a guest who shared, uh, kind of the, the mistaken history of some missionaries, uh, coming along with, and in some sense, allying themselves with colonizers. Uh, but then there were other missionaries who took a different approach and they, uh, Really uh, appreciated and embedded themselves within uh, within Chinese culture and were sharing the message of of their faith uh, in in a way that demonstrated understanding and appreciation of of the culture. Uh, is that is that a sort of similar parallel that you're talking about here, Graydon? Where um, yeah. where some 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 people thought that kind of siding with the colonizer was a was a mistakenly was it was a way of of pushing their uh, their faith ideas forward.
0: Well, I think I go back a little bit, if you don't mind, Uh, I sorry, (laughs) but what it was is after the Spaniards came to uh, the Central America, uh, the military people who were brought there were for conquest to claim something on behalf of the king and queen. So they could say, okay, we discovered this, whatever the wealth and riches are on the land and the people are our people. So in the enslavement that took place of the indigenous people in Central America, Uh, As early as 1511, if you can believe that, there was a Fray Montesino of the Dominican order who, in fact, condemned the practice of of brutalizing indigenous people, of depriving them of their resources, and making them into slaves. And believe me, he gave a very strong sermon. If you see it, you'll say, wow, this was a brave priest. In that audience was a man by the name of Bartholomew de Las Casas, who was sent there by his dad. From Spain to go there and take advantage of the commercial part. Las Casas was so moved, he decided to become a Dominican priest himself, and later was appointed a bishop. And then, through through uh, Las Casas, he convinced his friend, the theologian in Spain, Francesco de Vitoria, to in fact speak in favor of the indigenous struggle. Vitoria, in turn, influenced the Pope of the day, Pope Paul III, to issue a papal edict. 1537, which recognized the human rights of indigenous people and their land rights. Now, when that document was released in 1537, the king, kings of Portugal and Spain did not like it, but it was, so from the very beginning, there were these early people who spoke on behalf of the indigenous people, and, but that was forgotten. That, that's not talked about in our history, that's not talked about in our Catholic faith, that there were these voices, Catholic voices, like, almost like Voices in the Desert, which is what the John, uh, John the Baptist was to help us to go. But unfortunately, it got lost. But that actual document of 1537 is still valid in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. So <sighs> when you,
1: when you see the history, you have abuses of Indigenous rights that are, are done by people affiliated with churches or in the name of churches, and then you also have people uh, that are speaking out against those abuses, motivated from their faith encountering countering that. Do we, have, do we have some of those examples in Canada of people uh, of, of faith uh, who were critical from the beginning or, or, or at, at earlier points of the residential school system?
0: Uh, well, I'll just, I'm sorry. Maria, I'm just gonna say something here. You know, there's a Dr. Pete, Peter Bryson, right, Bryce, Dr. Peter Bryce, who in fact was a top medical person in Canada. And as early as 1907, he published a report, because he was commissioned by Indian Affairs to do it, and he condemned the system. He said, Mm -hmm. these children are dying. But the thing was, you see, that was censored. The government would not release that document. Mm -hmm. So finally, he had the courage to release it in 1922. And then as a result of that, he got fired. But he explained medically, children were dying. They were malnutrition. They were being experimented, and all these things. And again, that was hushed up because mm-hmm. the government controlled the information that went out. So I consider him a hero for coming out at that time uh, to see. And these were the early stages of residential school, but it's now coming out what happened. So anyway, I just want to voice his. Uh, I'm glad he spoke up. I yeah. really am. Uh, somebody had to put it on record. Now it's coming back to say, he was right.
1: Yeah, and, and, and our our politics today, and I'm sure it was true at the time, uh, there's such a push to conformity, to people just going along with what everybody else is doing. Um, Maria, I, I wanted to ask you, you this question. Uh, statistics suggest that um, many, if not most Indigenous Canadians uh, identify with the religious traditions of the communities that were responsible for residential schools. Um, so how are indigenous Catholics reacting to this discover in, in Kamloops and help us understand the thought process of people uh, who may have themselves been victims, have family members who were victims of the system uh, and continue to be part of, uh, of those faith communities?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, not to uh, speak on behalf of, behalf of them in terms of you know, their own thought process, but um, from the conversations I've had um, and the testimonies I've heard uh, from pe- indigenous peoples today who themselves went through the residential school system and who still identify as, as a uh, Christian or Catholic, depending on the denomination. Um, they, I think, have found through Christianity, a real encounter with, with Christ, and they've been able to sort of do that really difficult work of separating sort of human institution and human action and human error from the gold, I guess you could say, or from the truths and the values that, that the, the church holds, its belief systems, its, its, its sort of view of the world, right? Like Catholicism means universal, right? So when you become Catholic, or it doesn't mean that you negate your indigeneity, right? The two converge into into one. <laughs> like they're 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 not they're not um, inconsistent. And I think those who went through the residential school system and are still practicing Christians to this day have been able to sort of walk that very difficult path of reconciling um, the pain and the hurt that they. Experienced with the with the with the truth, right? With the truth of what they have also encountered in Christ. Mm-hmm.
1: Graydon, any reflections on that? Uh, well, <laughs> oh yeah, but
0: I I I'll just add a couple more things. Mm-hmm. Remember when they referred to the Spanish conquest in Mexico, and that's around 1520, and there were terrible things that were happening. They couldn't get too many Catholics to convert to the Catholicism. One such family was uh, Juan Diego and his family, and Juan Diego. And then, actually, on December th- on, on December the 10 to the 12, the Blessed Mother appeared in front of Juan Diego, and she appeared as an indigenous woman, mm-hmm. and she mm-hmm. said, "I have heard the cry of your people. I'm here to help you." And so, from the very beginning, uh, Jesus sends his mother, and because of her appearance as an indigenous woman in that area of Mexico, of course we recognize her as early Guadalupe now. You know, this is unfathomable when you stop and think in 10 years from 1531 to 1541, there were 9 million conversions into the Catholic faith of the indigenous people.
2: Mm-hmm. Now that's mm-hmm.
0: And she has been called the greatest evangelizer of our times and that she's a woman, not a man. So our church does not know the history uh, of how Jesus sent his mother at that time, the authorities paid attention to it, we probably would not be in the situation we're in now. Because I say, how come our Catholic hierarchy did not know this story when it started in 1866? How come they did not treat our children in that way? Because Our Lady dignified us. And so that is part of this process of reconciliation, Garnet, that has to take place. And I'm a firm believer, I'm a Catholic, firm believer, but I'm a firm believer of our Lady Guadalupe, who will lead us toward that reconciliation. But more of our people have to know this story of this beautiful intercession of our Lady Guadalupe. So that's what I'm adding on. And that's what I believe in. I I know mistakes were made in the church. I mean, Hitler himself was a Catholic, right? And look what he did to Jewish people. Did you say I'm going to be less of a Catholic because of Hitler? It's not. Mussolini,
1: but some some people do, right? Uh, Some people some people say those things. I mean, I've I've heard people talk online about uh, wanting to disassociate themselves from. So 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 you know, help us just you know, how would you directly counter that argument? You've got you've got a a young person, maybe an indigenous person, maybe someone who's not indigenous who simply heard these stories and and been horrified by them. Um, What's what's your what's your direct response to that person?
0: I tell them about the story of our lady Guadalupe and how she spoke our indigenous language. She came actually to serve to help our people. And our young people don't know that. They don't I the average Catholic in Canada would not even know who our Lady Guadalupe is. If you ask that question from the from the pulpit in the church this weekend, I'd say 85 if not 90% of the people would not know who she was and the significance of her appearance. So I explained to our young people then from the very beginning, we had the mother of Jesus appearing as one of us and telling us, I'm here to help you. That has not been spoken to them. Believe me, it hasn't. I do whenever I go see one of our churches and I'll continue to do so because to me, she is the one who's going to lead us toward reconciliation. I'm a firm,
1: firm belief. Mm-hmm. Maria, go ahead. You go ahead. jump in on that?
2: Yeah, and I think my response would be um, looking to examples of people who have done this work, right? I, I, I talk about it as work, right? This work of reconciliation. It's not just reconciliation on an indigenous state level or an indigenous church level, but it's also reconciliation within ourselves, both for indigenous and non-indigenous peoples. And um, I, many years ago, wrote a paper in, in undergrad on Sinkatiri um, Tikakuita. And I've always sort of looked to her as an example of somebody who has done that work. And she herself was young and died young. And she was only Catholic for four years um, of her life. But my my whole argument in that paper was this convergence of Indigenous and Christian identity and that her culture, her Mohawk context, very much informed her conversion and facilitated it Mm -hmm. and contributed to her Becoming holy, right? Becoming a saint, Bec- and to become holy means to become more human, right? It's not. It doesn't. Um, uh, again, it doesn't negate being indigenous. It just very much affirms your identity as a human being.
0: Mm. Could I just uh, add one more thing? Yeah, if please. You mind? Okay. <laughs> when Pope John Paul II uh, canonized Juan Diego on July thirty first, two thousand and two. One of his statements was Juan Diego did not have to surrender his indigenous identity in order to be a Catholic. And he called this the perfect form of acculturation into the Catholic Church. And I think that is what we need to do in our Catholic Church, is to bring in indigenous uh, spiritual values as part of our Catholic faith. Now, a lot of people tell me, "Why is well, aren't we influenced by the Greeks? It was only through the conversion of the Greeks by Paul that we begin to i mean why else do we say Kiri la in court mm-hmm. so if another culture can do that to help us why can't indigenous uh, spiritual values also help our church
1: yeah no that's a that, that's a, a great point that uh, really that the history of of, of catholicism and, and of all of christianity is is uh, um, has been to try to you know t- take essential truths and uh also kind of unite with, with existing cultures. And it's of course been shaped by cultural practices. And, um, you know, there are, there are even different sort of rites, different ways in which the, the, the mass is said in, in different kinds of traditions. And from what I understand, I, and I don't know all, all the details about this, but there was, there was at one time there were, there were actually kind of in indigenous Catholic rites. There were, where, where the traditions of the mass were profoundly shaped by indigenous, indigenous traditions. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a it's, it's really interesting to sort of think about how some people really got it wrong in thinking that um, that it was sort of a choice between uh, indigenous culture or or Catholicism when there's this great tradition in all parts of the world of, of kind of giving people space to engage with both
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know we met in the city of Edmonton there's a Sacred Heart Church which is yes. in, it's,
0: it's Catholic and beautiful beautiful uh, certain masses that they have but anyway i i agree i think the more we have of this then i think people will say hey just maybe they have something to contribute to our faith." yeah
1: yeah uh, i think it's uh, our, uh, our lady uh, of the first peoples in uh in downtown edmonton it's a it's a beautiful church and i know i know both of you are from from out east but uh <laughs> uh it's a it's a great place to come and i'm glad you're you're aware of it Graydon. um there has been some political pressure uh in parliament. On the Catholic Church to take certain steps, uh, and this this relates to a call to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for Pope Francis to uh, deliver an apology on Canadian soil, and um, uh, you know I I think what I've said publicly on this is is I would love to see that happen, and there has to also be kind of. Um, space for dialogue from the government side instead instead of the government dictating to the churches. But I, you know, I, I'd love to hear your, your views on, um, what steps the church needs to take, uh, to kind of continue on this journey of reconciliation. And then also what role the government should be playing in relation to the church. Go ahead.
0: Maria.
1: Uh, go ahead. Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So, um, yeah, well, it's very much like the sort of like the big question of you know, what is reconciliation? And it's sort of like this concept that continues to elude us. And and I think um, almost any you know good act, quote unquote, that the government does, they throw reconciliation at it. You know, we're eliminating boiled water advisories in First Nation communities. That's reconciliation. It's like, no, that's just making sure people have access to clean water. Like that's not you know, I I think reconciliation is a more su- substantive concept than that, if that makes sense. Um, so in terms of uh, what the church can be doing in, in terms of taking concrete steps towards reconciliation, there's, I'm sure, a whole host of responses and people would have different answers to this question, but I know that for me, being part of the ICRF, the Indigenous Catholic Research Fellowship, that's a concrete step in which I, as an individual, uh, Indigenous Catholic, um, want to manifest and make reconciliation real and concrete um, for both Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. And what the ICRF is, is basically... um, uh, we're still very much in our infancy. We've only have been in existence for about a year <laughs> so far. But um, its purpose, and Graydon is the Canadian co-chair. We have an American co-chair as well. But its purpose is uh, to sort of bring together um, or create a space where Indigenous uh, concepts, philosophies, worldviews can come into dialogue with Christian philosophies and worldviews and really sort of foster a space of recognition. Um, inculturation as we were talking about earlier right so we you know take sort of the christian concept of of evil and and talk about it in dialogue with the Cree concept of whitical right or or the christian concept of friendship and talking about it in in relation to the cree um legal concept of a which means like relationship or all of my relations right so having um these spaces to have these conversations is, I think, is very important, Uh, particularly when um, I have found, especially being a recent um, university graduate, these conversations get shut down pretty quickly, I think, in in our university institutions today. Um, There isn't much space for um, a Catholic voice Mm -hmm. just because of, you know, the history that we're talking about today right um so those are my thoughts on that question
1: yeah that's that's a really interesting perspective emphasizing the the grassroots kind of conversation understanding that has to happen and it is an interesting irony that you're pointing to that on, on the one hand there's a discussion of the need for reconciliation but on the other hand uh there's the the pushing out of the catholic perspective in some of the contexts where uh where, where you know if you want reconciliation to happen that has to be that has to be part of the conversation um i'll, I'll go to grade in a second but but Marie, i i do want to kind of drill down on the um kind of the what the catholic church as a whole should do so you talked about the the responsibilities uh, we have at, at a grassroots level of facilitating dialogue but um mm-hmm. but what's what's your take on kind of the 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 way in which things can or should proceed at a at a national or global level in terms of advancing reconciliation
2: um well, the the hot topic in in the news lately has been you know the, this apology, right? A, the, a people apology, and um, I think globally speaking, internationally speaking, that would be a very significant step um, in terms of moving us forward along the path of reconciliation because it is something that has come up over the years, even since Pope Benedict XVI expressed sorrow to uh, Phil Fontaine in 2009, right? That wasn't something that he, Phil Fontaine hoped that it would close the book. He, he, he had even said he'd hoped it would close the book on um, the need for a papal apology in the future. Um, but he also at the same time and in the same breath did recognize that the expression of sorrow wasn't a formal, you know, apology and not all uh, indigenous Not all representatives from all the different Indigenous communities uh, and nations within Canada were present uh, there to receive it either. So it's just, I think the fact that we're still talking about it probably is an indication that it's something that needs to happen, Mm -hmm. you know, over 10 years later, um, in order for us to really be able to move forward. And I think, yeah, on an international level, a people apology would, would be significant.
1: Yeah. So you're, you're saying that, that that action is significant uh, and, and that really in tandem with the grassroots conversations. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, okay, yeah, Graydon, go ahead. Uh, what's, what's your take on what steps the church uh, should take at, at, a, at a local, national and international level?
0: Well, I think uh, at first of all, at national level, uh, besides what the work that the CCCB does, there is also an association of Catholic colleges and universities in Canada. And there are actually 20, 20 uh, post secondary institutions, and they have issued a, pol- a statement on this, what's going on as well, because as inst- universal in- universities, they have a role to play. And I'm glad they published the statement. Like where I work at St. Thomas University, they're one of the ones that are part of that. Secondly, I think the federal government is trying to be a good guy in this, if I could say good person, maybe I say good person in this dialogue. But the Pope cannot come to Canada unless as a head of state, he is invited by the head of state of Canada, who is the governor general. And the governor general can issue an invitation only if the prime minister and his government agrees and the CCCB, that's the process. The general public in Canada, Catholic and non-Catholic do not understand that process, but that's the protocols in place. And I I hope, Pope John, I hope, I, I'd love to see Pope Francis come to Canada. Uh, because Pope John Paul II came here in 1984. And you know, one of the things he said, he said, Christ in himself is, is Indian. Can you imagine <clears throat> the Pope saying that we are part of Jesus as indigenous people? That has lost the uh, importance of that statement. So I, uh, but dialogue has to take place. What, what Maria has said, we have to have dialogue at the parish level diocesan level and a national level as well and it has to include not only catholics but the other the other uh religious organizations that were involved the anglicans united and the presbyterian this can only be done together
1: mm-hmm. so if, if you're talking to kind of a an everyday person who's non-indigenous and they're active in a church and it, you know it doesn't have to be the catholic church could, could be could be any church community um, you know, I, I'm gathering that you would really encourage them to be looking for local opportunities to facilitate conversations, uh, greater awareness of, of some of this, this additional kind of positive history, uh, as well as the negative history. Um, what, what are the concrete actions that individuals can take uh, coming out of, of what happened in Kamloops uh, and this broader awareness, as well as kind of learning from, from the conversation that we're having?
0: Uh, I, you, you know what's remarkable about Camelot? One of the children was only three years old. Now that child had to be born in that setting. Somebody had to father that child. now who is it? How come when the official uh, study was being done they only reported 51 deaths and all of a sudden 215 children are found on those grounds and in Brandon Mantua they just found they found 104. So the numbers are going to go up. So people are shocked and say, how could a three-year-old child die in a residential school setting? That, and that's what all of you are How can you stay a Catholic? I say, I'm staying Catholic because I have firm beliefs as an indigenous person, as also as a Catholic. I'm not going to give up. I believe in reconciliation. Tough struggle, but you have to know the facts. And I think, uh, Garnet, that was, that's, we have to face those hard, hard facts. And and then we build from that, from that pain and from that uh, knowledge together. Believe me, uh, there will be a resurrection experience
2: after that. Hmm.
1: Maria, did you want to respond to that?
2: Yeah, I would just add um, that on an individual level, I guess an individual call to action (laughs) um, would be really just taking the time to inform yourself, right? And I know that that's easier said than done, um, but there are so many resources out there um, that you can start you know, reading through. The TRC being one of them, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples done in the early nineties is another. Um, just really begin to start informing yourself on the history of indigenous state relations, indigenous church relations, you know orienting yourself to the context of how we got here um and then I think that will help to foster better dialogue because I, I find that I've I myself have often been in the position where people come into conversation with me on these issues and without really any substantive understanding of what these issues are really are about and they sort of expect me to be like this indigenous ambassador and inform them and that's that's not that's not the labor that I need to be doing as an indigenous person. That's a labor that you need to be doing as an individual. Um, so that, yeah, that would be my, my response.
1: Yeah. So one final question, we've talked a lot about faith. We've also talked about individual response. I, I, I do want to ask you both the, the political question and um, this is, you know, I'm, I'm a member of parliament at the same time we've said this podcast isn't it's not just a political show. We're not just here to, to talk about uh, what happens in government, because so much of of what happens in politics uh, should be informed by deeper questions about life and value and culture and philosophy. Um, but. There, there are a lot of policy frameworks, you know, that that govern the lives of indigenous peoples in Canada. Um, what should the government change? Uh, and what do you think about uh, the sort of current political policy discussion? Um, Maria, it's really interesting to me earlier in the discussion, you kind of distinguished between um, reconciliation and other policy areas. And You made the point that not everything is reconciliation. Clean water is clean water. It's basic public service. Reconciliation is something different from that. Um, so, so maybe on both fronts, on the reconciliation front, and then also on the just providing for basic needs front. Uh, what would you like the federal government to do?
2: Um, well, I think uh, one continue to work on the the basic needs front because a lot of Indigenous communities are still very much in need of those services, um, but also. Uh, yeah, the, the reason why I had made the the distinction was because reconciliation has a lot of different meanings and permutations, and um, at least on at least legally speaking, right, section thirty five of our Constitution Act, you know, recognizes and affirms uh, Aboriginal and treaty rights. Recognizes and affirms doesn't protect. Um, so, uh, I, I guess. Continue, like I said, continue to work on sort of the basic needs front, but also uh, on the legal front when it comes to, you know, resolving. um, And and what I'm trying to get at is, I think a lot of this history is a result of a disrespect for Indigenous, the exercise of Indigenous self-determination and sovereignty, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And I think now, looking, you know, looking back and using the legal mechanisms that we have in place. to try to rectify this is what needs to happen. And we're seeing that slowly unfold. We see that through treaty negotiations, um, land claim agreements, Um, but we also see indigenous peoples having to assert their sovereignty and trying to assert their self-determination through very costly legal battles that take up a lot of court resources, take up a lot of money. Um, and community resources that they often don't necessarily have um, and a lot of time as well. So I guess what I'm trying to say is changing sort of that legal landscape so that indigenous peoples aren't having to put themselves into these adversarial positions against the state in order to, in many instances, prove themselves, right? Prove that they have a right to Mm -hmm. do a particular activity or prove that they have title to their land. but that uh, we can really get to a place of reconciliation through, through as we've been talking about, dialogue and, and, and negotiation.
1: Thank you so much for that, Maria. Graydon, what's your take on the, uh, as, a, as a former vice regal, uh, you're, you're able to be political again, having, having had to be neutral for, uh, for the years when you were in that position. So uh, So what's your take on the current sort of state of political action around these issues?
0: Well, to be frank, uh, let's just take the situation of camels. we started with that, right? And then the, the discovery of the graves. And you know, Murray Sinclair, who used to be a colleague of mine, said that while they were doing the report, they asked the then Prime Minister of the day, which, which had been Prime Minister Harper, for additional money to in fact do more research on these uh, deaths that were taking place in residential schools. And the federal government said, no more money, that's it. So they could not go into debt. Okay, once the bodies were found in Kamalooks, miraculously overnight, Prime Minister Trudeau found $27 million somewhere in the coffers of the federal treasury and said, this money then can be used. He was always there to be used to uncover more sites. I mean, mean, the magic in the midnight hour, all of a sudden 27 million bucks is found, which is great, I'm not saying it shouldn't be. But the government has to, uh, what Maria has said, sit down with our indigenous nations on a nation to nation basis. We're not used to that language in Canada because you say, what do you mean nations? How could tribes or nations? Well, you know, Garnet, you're a, you're a federal member of parliament. Treaties can only be made between nations. So the peace and friendship treaties my ancestors signed the east coast here and other number of treaties that go from ontario all the way to the northwestern part of alberta treaties can only be signed by nations so at a time government conveniently thought our people were nations then after it was all done okay you're a nobody that that has to change that's a Mm. very fundamental change in relationship and that can only happen if canada agrees with that otherwise we'll still be 25 years from now debating this concept
1: yeah thank you both so much for being part of this conversation and uh uh yeah it's been it's been really profound and the, the, these conversations are always uh heavy because they bring to the fore um you know great injustice that has been done in the name of our country uh, and for those who, who are uh, part of the, the Christian denominations that were involved, the injustice done in the name of our faith. But it is, um, it is also very encouraging to hear both of you speak about uh, some of the other things that happened, some of the, uh, you know, really the, the way in which uh, um, uh, Indigenous people have, have seen uh, their culture and their faith uh, being integrated. Uh, the story of uh of Juan Diego uh and uh, and others that that you shared are ones that uh will really really stick with me because i i i had, I had heard about that you know being a catholic myself I, I i had heard about that but you know the specific significance of uh of the mother of of jesus appearing uh as a uh, as an indigenous woman and speaking indigenous languages really um you know it's, it's 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 really powerful and it's a it's a powerful reminder of what is what is the has been the history of the christian tradition in all parts of the world which is you know some evil done in the name of that tradition and also uh really some um some uh establishment of connection between the ideas of that tradition and the existing culture and practices of, of people and communities so uh, any any quick final words from either of you and then we'll uh, we'll move on to the second half
0: Well, I guess I'll, I'll say I continue to pray for reconciliation each day. My wife and I travel praying the rosary for myself in my language. And then for reconciliation for a lot of people, because there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of hurt. But it's only true prayer that we will in fact, will reach reconciliation.
2: Yes. And I definitely second that. Um, I... Myself, you know, I, my background is what informed my decision to put myself through law school and become a lawyer, because I really do believe um, that reconciliation is possible. Um, And it's something that I've decided to pursue professionally speaking. Um, But also, it's not just something that needs to be done legally, as I, as I mentioned before, I think reconciliation is also something that needs to happen on, on an individual, individual grassroots level as well. Um, so really putting my efforts into, uh, into those initiatives are, is also important, um, and doing it all through prayer and in prayer, because that is what <laughs> charges the batteries and helps to keep me going.
1: Okay. Well, thank you so much, uh, great Nicholas and, and Maria Lucas, uh, powerful testimonies of, uh, of being Indigenous and being Catholic and of struggling through this, this journey of reconciliation, reconciling those, those parts of your identity uh, and, and helping point the way for us in terms of reconciliation as a nation. Uh, for those who are listening, uh, stick around. Uh, we, uh, we're moving on to the second part now, where you'll get to hear from my friend, Robert Falcon, that former Liberal MP, uh, and uh, look forward to that right away here all right resuming debate by the way if you're enjoying this episode uh, please consider sharing with your family and friends uh we do these episodes every two weeks uh and uh and wow this is a great great conversation so far uh and we have uh, three guests on this episode, all of them are, uh, indigenous. So, uh, it's, uh, it's oh. people that, that, uh, that are indigenous talking about indigenous reconciliation. And, uh, the guest we have, uh, for the second half is, is my friend, former liberal MP, Robert Falcon that Great to have you with us, Robert.
3: Hi, I'm very, uh, very happy to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, Garnet.
1: Great. So, uh, Robert, I, I always knew that you were someone who is uh, very proud of your indigenous identity and culture, uh, but what what really most sticks out to me is the time that we were together as part of a delegation to uh, the West Bank, and this isn't West Bank, Kelow- or West Bank, BC. This is this is the West Bank in the Middle East, and uh, and you had um, So
3: good wine in the West Bank in Kelowna for sure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. The, the, yes, the
3: wineries are very nice.
1: Yes. Um, Great, great, great place. But that's not where we were. We, uh, we were, uh, we were in, in the, you know, the, the West Bank in the Middle East, uh, in, in Ramallah and elsewhere. And uh, you made a point of uh, sharing your Indigenous culture with, uh, with the Palestinian uh, leaders and peoples that we were interacting with. And I think that was, it was, it was probably a, a pretty rare opportunity uh, for people on the other side of the world to be uh, exposed to uh, Indigenous cultures from Canada. Uh, and I just, I just remember uh, there was when we had a, there was a, a cultural display night where we were getting to see some of the displays yes. of uh, you remember this yeah oh, oh, of course of, I remember this yeah okay. I got, I you, got you, up you, on
3: stage you, and I ended you, up singing yes uh, and I brought my drum along yeah I I, do, I don't know if you actually so for people who don't know what I actually usually do is I usually I sing and I have a my a drum and I sing some traditional Cree songs and uh, you know I do that at citizenship ceremonies because so I think it's actually very important to remind people. Um, you know, that, you know, indigenous peoples actually do exist. And I give a little bit of, uh, usually I give a little speech, uh, you know, keep it not too long, obviously, um, because people are, you know, very busy and I'm not there to take over an event or anything like that, but just give them a bit of a philosophy around, you know, who indigenous peoples are and that, you know, we still are on the land here in Canada. We still exist. Uh, We have importance um, and that we have to live together. And so uh, that's kind of what I do. And the reason I actually do that, uh, when I was first elected, actually I actually had uh, the Grand Chief from Ontario, Isidore Day. He came up in, in, the, in the rotunda and near the, in the House of Commons just after I'd been elected with an elder. And you know, he kind of poked me in the chest and said, oh, you know, like, good to meet you. And he you know, shook hands and, and he's like, you, know, you need to uh, remember to make sure our drum and our voices are heard in the House of Commons in a good way. And I took that uh, to heart saying, well, you know, like, what does it mean to be a good way? Um, uh, how can I build on the ideas of reconciliation? How can I build on uh, what the work that was being done at the TRC? And so, uh, you know, when I have an opportunity, I like to, to share that culture as much as possible. And that, in that case, we were in Palestine. And, um, and it, was, uh, it was actually quite interesting afterwards. A lot of the families came up to have a conversation with me about their feelings, Uh, I think they feel a profound sense of connection uh, to that, you know, in that moment, because, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, the same things that are happening to the Palestinians happen to indigenous peoples, there is colonization, there are colonies, Uh, you know, we love peace as well, everyone would like peace, but there are huge uh, differences between, you know, the groups in, in the West Bank and in Gaza, Um, in this case uh, you know you know over millennia uh, you know a fighting that has gone into building up a certain amount of hatred and uh, it was interesting speaking with them and then comparing to the Canadian experience uh, I think we're actually quite lucky in Canada Uh, we're also very you know quite unlucky um, in many ways as well Um, and depends on which side you're looking at it from but if you know if you know once you start thinking about like what we could do better in canada there are so many different things that we could try uh but i think you know like we were talking a bit about i think you were talking a bit about reconciliation and we just had a recent uh, the inuit mp uh with the ndp mm-hmm. was talking about um you know the racism that she found in the house of commons yeah i i there's always racism and the institutions are set up in a certain way but i remember indigenous languages in the House of Commons was a, a major act of reconciliation. Um, you know, when I first arrived, we weren't allowed to speak indigenous language in the house or have any translation or interpretation of those languages. And, you know, after study and, you know, some arguments and it was a very, a little bit emotional, but not too much argument uh, because people were actually very wanting to do the right thing. People were very committed to it. I remember speaking with Candace Bergen uh, you know, the government or the uh, opposition House leader at the time, uh, the government House leader, uh, Bartish Chagger. Uh, uh, you know, and also speaking with the block MPs and the NDP MPs and getting everyone's uh, working in the same direction. We actually got unanimous consent to change the ecosystem and the standing orders of the House of Commons to allow interpretation of Indigenous languages. Um, you know, that's a pretty major accomplishment. If you think about uh, you know, the parliamentary procedure and his adversarial nature uh, to get, you know, 338 MPs all moving in the same direction with the, you know, the political parties behind them moving in the same direction, you know, saying this is important to us, mm-hmm. you know, talking about, you know, being able to translate Indigenous languages in the House of Commons. And we have that privilege and that right to do that today. Um, you know, it's a you know a privilege for the MPs to speak in the sense that you know that's a right that they can exercise at any time that they wish, and there are MPs like uh, Jaime Batiste that Micma uh, who continue to exercise that right as uh, as much as possible. He you know continues to use his right to speak uh, you know his his people's language, um, and I think that's a that's a great thing. Uh, you know you know the type of country we're trying to to build. And it's a great example of you know the work that we can do when we work together.
1: Mm-hmm. So let me let me uh, drill drill further on that because I, I I agree with you. I mean, in terms of, of uh, that being a step forward, and um, I, I think you're, you know you're you're talking about maybe trying to have a. Um, I don't mean to, to minimize it, but it's sort of a glass a glass half full approach to the the progress we could make. There's more work to do, but you know, recognizing some of these steps that have been taken. I guess one of the criticisms people would make well, of,
3: like if like you know, I'm always I'm always gonna say, like if
1: you know, if we could snap fingers,
3: you know, everything would be done. But you know, human beings being human being, institutions are large institutions. The federal government is 215,000, 240,000 employees. and uh, you know, if we could change things overnight, we would have. Uh, But obviously, you know, there are rules and procedures in place. There are cultures to change. And that is extremely difficult. And it's not something that happens uh, literally overnight. And an example of that is the Canadian Armed Forces. I'm an anthropologist. I have a PhD in anthropology. And I I love studying different cultures. And I've been a member of the Canadian Forces also for 25 years in the regular forces and the reserves. And when I first joined in in 96, uh, we had issues with our leadership. Uh, We had major cultural issues surrounding ethical and moral leadership in the Canadian Armed Forces. And 25 years later, uh, you know, we have corrected a lot of those problems, but there are many problems that still remain. And yet Mm -hmm. that's a command and control culture where I direct you to do exactly as you're told. And yet we still have issues where people are causing harassment, sexual harassment where they are bringing disrepute upon the Canadian Armed Forces. And so, you know, that, that that culture is extremely hard to shift. And here we're actually, you know, in this case, Indigenous peoples are asking the Canadian public to shift uh, their cultures, their way of thinking about Indigenous peoples. And while we're having a great amount of progress, there are still, um, you know, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in order to move along in the right direction. Um, mm. And, you know, I was speaking you know, like we were talking, you were talking a bit about Kamloops, I was having a conversation with a friend who is non-Indigenous. And uh, he said, you know, I've, I've heard, you know, enough, I understand, I get it, Uh, you know, time to move on to the next topic. And that was, you know, his comment to me, you know, it was eye opening, I enjoy having frank and open conversations uh, like that with people, I don't like getting like, uh, you know, always, uh, you know, the, you know, uh, you know, you know, the flowers and yeah, you know, we're going to, you know, you know, the conversation where everything is perfect, and, you know, like, but, you know, actually hearing some of the real truths out there about how people actually feel. And it is, uh, you know, we're, this is a long road and Murray Sinclair continues to say it's a 20, 25 year process. You know, it took several generations, as he says, to get to do colonization, it's going to take several generations to undo or recreate a different type of Canada. I'm not sure you can undo colonization maybe i think we have to create something brand new but you know we can't do it
1: yeah I, I think that's a that's a really valuable perspective in terms of i think the things that tur- get people make people turn away from from activism or from politics sometimes people are like there's this is this legitimate intense impatience that says like why haven't we fixed everything and that leads people to maybe take a step back and the other i think sometimes what people feel as well is just intense shame about the injustices that have happened and that leads them to look away. That leads them mm. to to want to distract themselves because uh, thinking about these issues is is a source of uh, of potential shame for 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 Canadians and and uh, you know right, rightly so. But you're, what you're saying, I think, what you're encouraging us to is is recognize that we need to work on solutions and so that those solutions take time. And so those of us who yeah, it doesn't mean you about, don't
3: push. Doesn't yeah. mean you don't ask. Yeah. Don't you don't have the conversations. It's Um, sometimes I think it's just putting it a little bit in perspective, you know, along the timeline, you know, where we're going,
2: but it's interesting
3: that you raise that issue that, you know, there's shame among, there could be shame among Canadians over this issue.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think it's, I think it's very, um, I think it's very, very pronounced, right. That, that people, um, you know, there's, there's these discussions about, well, I guess maybe I'll, 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 ask you this directly. So with, with Canada day coming up, uh, there's been some, at least one city i know of that have decided to just cancel canada day celebrations um there's also movement to take down statues of uh various historical figures um what's what's your response to uh, to those events i mean is there a um is there a way in which we can have some positive memory of the past while recognizing that great injustices were committed as well or are you on the side of saying we need to uh you know we need to be taking these steps
3: Um, I think you need people of all different types uh, pushing the issues. I don't think uh, everyone can be the same, obviously. Um, But, you know, when I think about Canada, you know, I lived in Quebec for a long time, 16 years um, in uh, Quebec City, actually, when I was in the armed forces. And, uh, you know, when I was living there, you know, I learned the importance of uh, St. John Baptiste Day, uh, you know, the 24th of June. Uh, I'd already known the importance of June uh, 21st. Uh, especially related to you know some you know ceremonies and indigenous peoples and the solstice and you know canada day and i think it's actually it's you know you don't build a nation by tearing down others is a comment that i would make but you know if you look at you know that moment it's kind of this you know it could be a week from between or at least about 10 days uh almost or over 10 almost 10 days where you could celebrate you know from coast to coast to coast um, Uh, you know indigenous peoples you know frank francophones and uh you know people of english origin and then also the newcomers that make up this our country you know i i know we kind of indigenous people sometimes we get very angry um and you know rightly so like you know my father you know had a lot of problems in his life due to you know some of the impacts of residential school uh you know my grandmother as well um but at the same time i i I think we have to look for ways of like, how do we actually build the country that we want, not for ourselves so much, but for our children and our children's children and and those generations to come. Um, When we start our prayers um, in, with the pipe or, you know, in in churches, you know, when we have a a church, St. Katakuri, Katatari, just here in Winnipeg, just off Ellis in in Winnipeg Center, my old writing, we we have a prayer where we pray to the you know the children who are you know are yet on and you know it's a reason for that it makes us think you know long term like what is it that we're doing today to make the world a better place uh, so that when they come uh, when they are uh, here that you know they won't have to deal with the same issues uh, you know that's You know, that's kind of, I think it's important. And I think when you relate it to Canada, I think, you know, you should be celebrating uh, Canada. It really is actually a, you know, relative to other countries. It is actually a great nation. You know, we do have much more respect for human rights than many other places in the world. Um, You know, we can improve obviously, Uh, you know, and if we keep pushing and asking for change and and getting people on side for that type of change, we can build a country for everyone.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's uh again I think such a, a good perspective seeing our country as, as a, a work in progress loving our country for what uh, for, for, for the strides we've made but also for uh, the work we need to do and working to pass a better country on to our children um, and it, it, it's always sort of there's it, always fa- at yeah. least there's always something that unites us
3: you know not to be glib but you know at least we got the Montreal Canadians
1: oh come on <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> you know, conservative, conservative liberal bridge is, is one thing, but when you start talking about the Montreal Canadiens, I, you know. Uh, so, I hope I
3: haven't jinxed them. I hope I haven't yeah. jinxed them at
1: all. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I thought you were going to rub it in over the, over the jets uh, trouncing the Oilers uh, in, in four, but uh, anyways, I shouldn't have. And we got the, trounced uh, ourselves. So yeah. Uh, yeah, you had it coming. Um, <laughs> let's talk a bit about, you uh, sort of indigenous Catholic relations, because uh, this has been uh, in the news uh, quite a bit, and it's obviously a, a very important dimension of uh, sort of our response to what happened with, with residential schools. Um, you were in parliament in the, in the last parliament when Charlie Angus had put forward his, his motion, uh, kind of semi calling out the Catholic church specifically. Um, and I, I had some concerns about the way the motion was worded and, and wanted to see these things kind of advance through, through direct dialogue. Um, as a, as a former parliamentarian, what's, what what was your take on that motion? But, you know, more broadly, what's your take on the state of, uh, kind of indigenous Catholic uh, dialogue? You mentioned a church in your writing, you know, so it seems like it's something that's, that's quite imminent in, in your own community.
3: Well, I don't think we should assume that all indigenous peoples, uh, are the same. I don't think, um, I think there's a great diversity among the indigenous population. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes, you know, the words we use in parliament actually can be quite hurtful. And we have to be very careful in leadership roles. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think people, it's easier to go try and score a, a quick political point rather than actually building those bridges between uh, different groups and trying to advance an idea. Um, you know, I, you know, there's a lot of uh, indigenous Catholics you know, my father was, was Catholic. Mm -hmm. Um, My mother was Anglican. So I became an Anglican because that's where she took me to, to go to church, Uh, which, you know, we're kind of like, I guess, Catholic. You know, I I won't anyways, we're almost Catholic. Almost. Maybe we'll be back together again soon. (laughs) Maybe one day, maybe. Yeah. Um, A few issues, uh, you know, you know, a few issues we need to work out. Yeah. A few centuries old, but uh, you know, like, You know, I remember being in Quebec and they have uh, Saint Anne's Cathedral, and this is a very important saint among indigenous peoples. They have Saint Anne's, uh, you know, pilgrimages that go across in Alberta and and other parts of the country where people, uh, you know, know, just renew their faith and their connection to, you know, spirituality, which I think is actually a very indigenous and a natural human thing to be connected to the world around us. You know, and the question of this is, do we want to make religion uh, a divisive issue? Is this a battle uh, over, uh, you know, some institutional rules and regulations? Or should, you know, are are we really wanting to have a war about religion? I think we have to be kind of careful, uh, especially MPs who are in leadership roles. We don't know the influence that we have and how we can, instead of calming uh or helping with tensions we're inflaming them and and causing more hurt and more pain and making it even harder in some cases to for people to come together uh you know i always said like for instance you know if you know i my great uncle uh bill watini who was the national chief uh for uh, national uh indian association which was the forerunner of the national indian brotherhood which was the sem which was eventually became the assembly of first nations uh, you know, he went to uh, with uh, Phil Fontaine to Rome. Uh, I think it was almost a, almost a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know heard you know the remorse. You know he was very uh, happy and and satisfied with that moment. He was proud that you know it had taken so long to get there. You know he had fought long and hard for the Indian residential school court cases to move through the court system, uh, working with Tony Marchant, who's a lawyer from Saskatchewan. You know, it might not have always been easy, but it was a battle that he was, you know, willing to undertake. And, you know, it led to the eventual Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It led to a number of other things which were extremely, you know, where we are today. And I think, you know, you know, this is good. But I always used to say that if, you know, I think if we invite the Pope to Canada, you know, officially, as a government invites him, you know, I think, you know, my understanding of Pope Francis, I think he's a fairly uh, kind individual. He has a great understanding of, of what happens in different communities. And I'm not sure we would even have to request for him to make an apology. I think it would probably come naturally. Um, you know, because people, I think it would just be the right moment and the right time. And I think it probably should happen in Canada. It shouldn't happen, you know, in a speech in, you know, it's in, in, you know at the Vatican, it should happen, you know, on Canadian soil, you know, and, you know, during a you know, a mass, um, with the Pope there. And, you know, I think you just have to invite him to come.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so just facilitating that opportunity and in terms of Pope Francis himself, uh, his uh his latest encyclical and i'm gonna butcher the pronunciation of this but frutelli 2d or something and it's probably it's a okay I'm, I'm getting the so-so from from uh our resident latin expert here but um <laughs> but the the um you know he speaks specifically about a nothing but cultures. the best right but he but he, he specifically speaks about uh, uh you know Affirming and and preserving indigenous cultures in uh, in in his encyclical. So I, I think, um, you know I I'm just very uh, keen to see those those conversations be able to happen. And from what I understand, from what's been reported, there were there were some plans in the works for 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 more encounter um, that were delayed as a result of of uh, the pandemic. So um, so we'll see where this goes. Um. Well, of course, the pandemic's
3: yeah. delayed quite a bit of a yeah. uh, number of issues, and I think you know that's probably going to be the greatest concern because you can't have uh, you know mass crowds coming together to you know to have those moments of commune yeah. and, and commons.
1: Yeah, um, Robert, another another uh, question I wanted to ask you on the on the Catholic kind of indigenous relations front. In the last election, uh, you uh, you 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 lost to Leah Gazan, who's from the NDP. Uh, and she's also Indigenous, and I recall reading a story at the time about you challenging her uh, for some um, pretty sharply worded comments she had made about Catholicism and about Catholics, um, and, and I think they related to her kind of response to certain certain things that have happened in Catholic Indigenous uh, relations. Do you want to maybe just share that story from your perspective and why you felt uh, it was important to, to speak out about uh, those events?
3: Yeah, of course. I represent people from all walks of life in, in, in Winnipeg Center, and I don't think I should be singling out as a as a community leader and organizer one particular group over another. And and questioning, um, and this in, in this case, it was related to uh, you know cases of Catholic priests who are who are abusing and sexually abusing children, pedophiles, and uh, you know in her post, I believe she likened that you know if you don't say anything as a catholic about this or that you're in agreement with it essentially and i took great umbrage to this uh, because i think it paints everyone with the same brush and i don't think you know when you you consider the implications it's you know it's saying you know it doesn't matter what you do in your life that uh, you know you know you might have you know a criminal element in an organization that you're all the exact same and we know that's you know obviously not true um, have you know teachers that you know the vast ninety nine point nine nine percent of teachers are great teachers. You might have one or two uh, every so often that does some something terrible, but do we say all teachers are terrible? Uh, it's like what's going on with the Canadian forces right now. Um, are all Canadian forces members, uh, you know, sex addicts uh, with you know harassment issues that hide truth? You know, obviously not. Um, Are there, are there issues with some of the leadership? Of course there are. Um, But do we paint all the Canadian forces members with the same brush? And I think it goes for any community. I think if you're a community leader, you need to represent everyone. Um, You know, in my writing, you know, it's 20% uh, Filipino. And while many of them, you know, might not be Catholic, there are a significant portion which are Catholic and they do great things in the community. They're volunteering, they're feeding the homeless, they're, uh, donating money, they're donating their time. They're uh, cleaning up the community. Uh, they're doing, you know, good public works. And to, you know, point out that, you know, that, you know, uh, you know, to say that, you know, they're all essentially, you know, in agreement with pedophilia, I think is completely wrong. And I think it's, you know, it's actually quite harmful uh, to many of them because, you know, they come to this country you know, trying to build a better life and, and to contribute. And to have that question, I think, in such a, uh, you know, you know, kind of a, such a dishonest way is not, not the type of leadership we need.
1: Yeah. So you, you talk about the Filipino community, um, you just sort of triggered another thought uh, for, for me. Um, one of the interesting dynamics in the Catholic Church is that you have this history in terms of uh, Catholic Indigenous relations, but a, a lot of today's Canadian Catholics come from new Canadian communities for whom yeah. uh, this history is, you know, it's not part of their own personal history. Right. Uh, so, you know, you, you've got a riding. it sounds like where you have, you've got a substantial Catholic community. Uh, you've got uh, indigenous communities, people who have been here for the longest and, uh, and you've got very new Canadian communities. So must be interesting to kind of see that, that dialogue, that bridging that takes place between uh, uh, you know, the, the, the people who've been here for the longest and the people who are, are just arriving?
3: Of course, uh, you know, when I go to those uh, citizenship ceremonies, I've, I think I've done over 80 of them uh, when I was the MP for, in four years. So I've met thousands of newcomers, um, you know, and when I sing Indigenous traditional songs and I say a prayer and, a, a war, you know, words of welcome, you know, they're actually quite, uh, you know, for many of them, it might be their first contact with Indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. And you know, I want it to be a positive one. Um, yeah. You know, they don't. Very, you know, I don't want them having the imprint. You know, like where we kind of go have the negative stereotypes about who Indigenous peoples are. So I think we can, we can build on you know building something much more positive, and and working from there. And that's part of you know why I do that as well is because you know we do need to have like you know positive leadership. It's easy in politics. To get very negative i don't know mm-hmm. if you've noticed that right? like <laughs> no <laughs> you know we do that we love the theater in the house of commons yeah. but you know sometimes you know we get you know people do get very impassioned about a subject and and they take it down a road sometimes which is so um so destructive uh you know and there was uh, an issue uh, between two Inuk MPs. At, at one point, you might have heard about, you know, one questioning the identity of the other, if it was Indigenous enough. And I think that opens, all, opens up a whole can of of worms. Um, and it's actually not very helpful because it actually, you know, people who are trying to reclaim or decolonize or trying to rebuild their, their societies and their nations within Canada, trying to create something new, if all of a sudden, You say, well, you know, you're not enough. Well, what's enough? And what is Indigenous? And what's not Indigenous? And who is going to decide those types of questions? You know, those are good, you know, those are good conversations, but, you know, maybe it's not the place to be having them on the floor of the House of Commons or on Twitter, where you can only explain yourself in 160 characters, um, you know, trying to tear someone down in order to score a few political points in order to advance, you know, your political party is uh you know some of these questions aren't meant to be you know played like hockey uh you know with a winner takes all attitude in the game seven you know we're supposed to be you know you know this is like you know the friendly match where we're actually all working together and we're raising money for you know uh some good cause which is what it should be uh you know trying to you know have a conversation about you know something which is important to the community and trying to you know move in the same direction
1: yeah Okay, so, so this will be my last question for you. And, and maybe to push back a little bit on the uh, on the uh, emphasis on non-partisanship. It's just, just a little bit, because I I mean, I, I think- Oh, I think it's important. I you think we're yeah.
3: somewhat. Yeah, yeah. I, I enjoy the give and take a little bit. You need some, you know, it's good to have a debate between two clear lines a little bit. Yeah, and, and, and it, also and it helps inform it.
1: the- Yeah, it, there's, there's a way of doing it, but it also helps kind of- um, you know, when you have accountability and challenging people to follow through, it's, it, it can, it can really drive, drive progress. But I, I have always appreciated, uh, you know, Robert, your willingness to be, um, to be tr- trying to seek that unity and also to be challenging even your own, your own party. And I know you've taken stands on issues stemming from your values that are different from your party, um, and I think more people, more people need to do that. So I, so I want to ask you just as a final note on, on the politics of it, you know, evaluate six years into, uh, the, the Trudeau government, uh, the, the, the kind of the record on, uh, uh, indigenous relations, indigenous reconciliation. Um, I think you're familiar with the criticisms, which are that, um, There have been various goals that have been set, including around things like clean water that haven't been met. And also, you know, the criticism from from your former caucus colleague, Jody Wilson-Raybould, that said, you know, basically the government uh, did not opt for broader, deeper, more fundamental rights recognition, and instead um, took on these uh, important issues like like Indigenous languages, but issues that are... um, you know that, that don't have maybe the same impact on the the daily mm-hmm. life i mean your your ability to speak in an in indigenous language in the house of commons and my ability to have that translated is very valuable it's meaningful right I, I don't mean to suggest it isn't but um but the the impact on um but but i guess the criticism is that we're not seeing enough policy change that really brings about that impact for the the everyday Indigenous person who is not in the House of Commons uh, and who's who's, uh, you know, not, who, who's who's not benefiting from these kinds of, of, of actions. So what's, what's your response and evaluation on that? Uh, and, and we'll leave you the last word here.
3: Well, I think there's so many different fronts going on at the same time, so many different uh, ideas, so many different needs. Uh, one, we we're talking to, in, in this case, we're talking about Indigenous government, which I think what's what Jody was talking about, but there's also languages. There's also children. There's also education issues. I think the government's made some pretty good strides. Uh, The water issue, I think it's quite difficult uh, one to begin with. uh, Because if you if you look at actual government policy, you know, I could fly in, build a water treatment plant, drop off the keys and say, good luck. Uh, You know, we built you your water treatment plant, but we know that's not going to work. So like we have to set up training programs. We have to have, you know, funding that goes on into the future. And I think that's a, it's a little bit more difficult, as I was saying, than just snapping our fingers and, and getting stuff done. Like some of these communities are extremely remote and to get stuff in there's only in the winter. Um, doesn't mean it shouldn't be done, but it's just sometimes I think a, a little bit of a logistical nightmare in order to get the things done. Um, I think some of the more substantive change, if we're actually really thinking about it. And I, was, I mentioned that earlier, I was thinking about future generations is surrounding issues of poverty. You know, this is, uh, you know, a, a Canadian issue, but it, uh, it impacts everyone. But I think this invariably impacts a lot of Indigenous peoples. I know it impacts a lot in, in downtown Winnipeg, Edmonton, uh, Toronto, Montreal, in Quebec City, uh, where people just don't have enough resources to supply, uh, you know, or, you know, to make sure they meet their daily needs. And, you know, whether it's access to a good quality job, um, you know, these things are extremely important because if you, you know, if you can't be the good hunter, you know, what else are you going to be? Um, and I think when we look at, you know, the reforms in child welfare legislation that the federal government has made for the first time, uh, actually enable, putting, enabling legislation for First Nations to control, you know, the access or, you know, or you, know, you know, what happens to their own children in the child welfare system is extremely, you know, an important step forward And, you know, we're finally starting to see we're going to start seeing hopefully like benefits to that where, you know, we're having less children in the care of the state where they're looking, you know, children are being taken from their families and being placed in foster care and cared for by different communities, different people, you know, not their family members. And, you know, if we can kind of change that system, maybe we can educate our children properly and maybe we can reduce the problems in the long term. But as Murray Sinclair said, this might take several generations to do. Education is not something you can do overnight. It's not something that, you know, uh, that you can, uh, you know, give someone all the knowledge they need in, you know, in a, you know, in a quick year. Uh, this is something that is built up over, you know, several generations. Uh, you know, it's a kind of like a social, you know, capital that we build up among people. And there are people, even among the indigenous people, who are very successful. You know, with parents that have built up a social capital, they've been. Successfully, you know, successful in both worlds in the indigenous and non indigenous world, able to maintain their language. And there's others who have grave difficulty. And the question is, how do we bring everyone along and how do we lift up more people to where we want them to be? Uh, you know, it, it, sometimes those questions, you know, they're not as interesting uh, to debate uh, on the floor of the House of Commons, but they're actually far more important then you know sometimes debating you know you know what type of government we have or what type of interaction we have or electoral laws or things which I think you know governments and politicians love to debate but you know like you know the simple question of how people live on an individual basis and what tools do they need to be successful in life uh, is a much more fundamental question that we haven't really been able to grapple with and i think that would benefit not only indigenous peoples but non-indigenous peoples as well in this kind of, in our country mm-hmm.
1: great great points robert thank you for being <sighs> here for this conversation um uh you've been generous with your time and uh maybe we'll see each other again in the next parliament uh, maybe we won't maybe you'll win and i'll lose so <laughs> oh wow that would, uh, be, a it, change, would be a huge
3: change that's a, that's a wave
1: it would be, uh, yeah, it would be, it'd be great to, to spend some time together again. If, uh, if the, uh, all wise voters uh, decide to allow that to happen. So thank you for, for joining us in the meantime uh, much. On, on, on the podcast. This has been a great conversation and I'll say as well, I, I, uh, I briefly thought it would be great to have you, uh, share uh, a song on, on this, but I, I, I decided that the, the audio system wouldn't work. No, so well usually it, but... it's
3: not very good. Actually, usually, uh. Usually but, cuts uh, out
1: and gets too loud, but people can uh, people can probably find these things online somewhere, right? Uh, yes, yeah. They can, uh, Robert yeah, Falcon singing, yeah. Um, <laughs> and the 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 traditional indigenous singing it's it's a very different kind of sound, right? Um, but it's 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 awesome. Like I I I actually genuinely love love listening to it. Um, and, uh, I've, I've loved hearing you do it. Uh, you, you came and did an event in my riding as well. Uh, uh at, at one point, you're the only liberal MP I've invited to come and speak to my constituents in my <laughs> office. It's always, always a dangerous thing to do. Cause you know, you never know if what's, what's going to happen. <laughs> we with cost you the
3: deal. election by one vote or
1: something. Yeah, you know. <laughs> ex- ex- Exactly. You're going to start making a, a bold pitch, but no, we've, it's, it's, uh, it's great to see you again. This has been a, a great conversation. Thank you. And uh, I think, you know, some big takeaways for me are, um, the on the one hand the impatience we need to have to try to move move forward the the cause of justice and reconciliation yeah, of course. but on, but on the other hand the patience we need to have which is uh which is recognizing the time that's going to be involved and committing to working uh and, and not just thinking it's it's going to be all out there the government is going to do something but that that you know working at the local level taking steps that we can in our own in our own spheres to move this forward i think that's maria said that uh. yes yes i just uh <laughs> I just said it too. There you go. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you um, nice. There's uh, there's probably somewhere on the app you're using, you can leave a review or something. I don't know. My, my sister's shaking her head here. I uh, leave a review somewhere on the internet. I don't know how this works, but, but, uh, but do that, you know, five stars, 10 stars, even whatever, whatever, whatever they let you do. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. We'll see you in two weeks with another episode on resuming debate.